0: In the Reading Corner today, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Alex Wheatle. He's a highly acclaimed British novelist. His first novel, Brixton Rock, is set during the Brixton riots. It tells the story of Brenton Brown, a 16-year-old mixed-race youth who has spent his formative years in a children's home and is haunted by the absence of his mother. Although this is a work of fiction, many readers will make connections between the lives of the hero and the author. Alex's first novel for younger readers, Little Bit, was published in 2015 and long-listed for the Carnegie. Little Bit was the first book in a trilogy and the second, Crompton Knights, won the Guardian Children's Fiction Prize. Alex's forthcoming novel for young readers Cane Warriors will be published by Anderson Press in October 2020 and we're going to be talking about that novel shortly. But I also want to make note that Alex has been shortlisted for the 2021 NSK Neustadt Prize for Children's Literature. This is a highly prestigious award and it recognises not only a single book but the significant achievement of a writer and the ongoing positive impact that they have on children's literature. Alex I'm so pleased that you can join me today. I'm
1: pleased to uh, join you Nikki, really happy <laughs> to be here.
0: Now before we uh, talk about Cane Warriors which is set during 1760 and it's the story of Tacky's rebellion, um, a slave rebellion on the island of Jamaica. This was a deeply affecting story which did more than most books that I read. It was one of those reading experiences where something actually shifts. It did more than show me an episode in history or encourage me to empathy. What it did was it made me feel about this situation in a way that only great fiction can do. And so I'd like to thank you for that.
1: Well, thank you for your kind words. That was my... Intention. I really wanted to um, change the narrative to um, the real stories um, and to put readers to where our journey uh, almost began, if you like, back in uh, the Caribbean, back hundreds of years ago, colonial times, and how my ancestors lived their lives.
0: Should we start with the history then? Uh, This is the story about. Uh, Tacky's Rebellion as we said and it's one of just a number of slave rebellions in the Caribbean in the 18th century. I know you've written a little bit about this in the author's note at the end but for listeners can you tell us what drew you to this particular rebellion?
1: Well Taki's 1760 rebellion was really um, whispered to me by my mother. My mother grew up in a little town called Richmond in a north parish of Jamaica called St. Mary. And adjacent to there are the uh, the old frontier and trinity plantations. And this is where Taki um, started his rebellion. It was rumoured that uh, Taki was some kind of African prince. He came with a big reputation. That I cannot confirm that, but that's what people have been saying. And so he had uh, some kind of um, aura about him, some kind of presence. And so um, he planned his Easter rebellion in 1760 and he took his fellow captives with him And I always wondered what it must be like if um, you're a 12, 13, 14 year old boy, because at that age you were considered a man. And you were asked to um, make the cane fields and work there and you were lashed with the wood just like any other person was. So I just tried to imagine a young teenager having to deal with that dilemma of whether he should join the rebellion or not.
0: And one of the surprises for me, actually, in the book, I mean, his father urges him not to. I was surprised at his mother's encouragement, really, to leave. Well, perhaps,
1: um, imagine a mother losing sons. Maybe there's some hope in her heart that um, her last son will manage to um, free himself and escape. And it's a very human reaction, I think. I mean, you could uh, make, a, make a case for both parents with mother's father saying, you must not go. Um, he's afraid that he might get killed or hanged or whipped to death. Or with the mother saying, no, son, go. And mm-hmm. so you can see both arguments there. And I can almost hear that um, interaction all these years later taking place in a Jamaican plantation. And um, the arguments for to go with this uh, slave revolt and the arguments to slay because I guess at least you can be alive, at least you can uh, live rather than uh, try to escape and maybe be uh, executed.
0: Mm. And of course, uh, this book in a way is a recognition of not only Tacky and his lieutenants, if you like, but everybody who took a stand because if nobody takes a stand, nothing changes.
1: That is correct. And you have to um, sit together, you have to um, plan together, and you have to um, face the consequences together. Otherwise, it would have fouled probably at the first plantation, but at least they had a momentum behind them. And indeed, they, uh, they sacked the Fort Haldane on the north coast, uh, Port Maria. is spectacular. And it's where um, Noah Coward had his Firefly property as well. So it's a really uh, incredible um, visual when you go out there. It's something like 1,000 feet over sea level, and it offers incredible views. So if you ever go to Jamaica, don't just stay at the resorts. Go out and visit these incredible sites where these um, slave uprisings took place.
0: And I think it was actually uh, partially a visit yourself that uh, took you on this journey, wasn't it?
1: It's an interesting story because I was reunited with my father in 1987. I tracked him down to Kingston. He was teaching in a Kingston school. He used to um, teach woodwork and metalwork. And um, he asked me to uh, draw up a list of um, sites I wanted to go and one of them had to be Bob Marley's birthplace in Nine Mile in Saint which is not too far from Port Maria and also me being a literature fan and a playwright fan I wanted to visit Noel Cowell's property and um, I was unaware at that point in my life that these slave uprisings took hold in this very place and um, it's only later um, when I was speaking with my mother many many years later But she remembers, as a little girl, that um, her elders would sometimes whisper and mention Taki's name. But later on, she uh, discovered that um, where she lived was very adjacent to where the uprising took place. And I thought, wow, oh my gosh, you know, these people could be my ancestors. And so it just gave me a tingle
0: in my bloodstream.
1: (laughs) It really did. I felt I was compelled to write this story.
0: And it's interesting because you've talked about this kind of folk memory, if you like, passed down through generations, yeah. 200 years of storytelling, basically. But were there other sources that were not written by the British, if you like, you know, that were written by the slaves themselves, or or is it just passed down from folk memory? Most of
1: it is folklore and um, the word of the griot. I mean, that's the old West African tradition of uh, old storytelling. And so um, my mother remembers some of it, and um, her sisters did too, and also um, her parents did. And so legends get passed down, as you know, uh, in storytelling communities. Just, it's just like what happened in the UK, with the story of King Arthur and his legendary search for the, um, the Holy Grail, that is steeped in legend and myth, isn't it? Yeah. And so that's what happens to stories. They, after many, many decades and centuries, uh, the legend builds and uh, Taki's legend is no doubt grown and uh, expanded and I really wanted to take the skeleton of this story and build a fiction around it because we know certain facts are true yeah. we know that uh, there was a massive revolt on a number of plantations we know that they killed many um, British army officials at Fort Haldane and we know they stole gunpowder and guns we know that much And so I was able to create and build a story around those key elements.
0: I wanted to ask you about the things that you feed in about the Akan people who are from Ghana, isn't it? That sort of area of West Africa. And it struck me how the things that I've read and seen about slavery almost take it as though slavery is the beginning and that nothing kind of existed before. And I think what really comes through in your novel is the history of these people.
1: It was fascinating for me to discover all this history. I mean, over the years, I have accumulated various stories and legends and belief systems that were held in Western Africa, especially the gods that they prayed to. These people had their own belief systems, they had their own rituals, they had their own strength in those gods, And that kind of gave them courage, it gave them confidence, and it gave them lots of bravery to actually confront their masters. It really did. Mm. And so I really wanted to pay homage to that in some kind of way, Mm. because these people were not just, um, as as being portrayed in some other texts, as savages, as unknowing, as um, stupid or whatever. Uh, no, they were actually had these belief systems, and they told stories to their children about their ancestors, their ancestors, and mm. so they had a very strong belief in their culture, and they wanted to further that culture, but obviously they were denied.
0: And what's interesting about your narrator Moa, the fourteen-year-old boy that you've mentioned is that it's only when he comes into contact with people from other plantations that the religious aspect of it really comes to the fore, for instance.
1: Absolutely, because we have to remember that um, a person of Moa's age, 13 or 14, he's working in a field all day. And maybe he's not close enough to um, characters like Miss Pam, who carries those stories with her and spreads that story to maybe the children. And so you can be uh, kind of disconnected, if you like, because plantation work, it was severe, it was harsh, it was sun up, sun down, back breaking work, and when you finish, you're exhausted, absolutely exhausted, and sometimes you had no contact, especially with the women who worked at the big house, you had no contact, you had to have special privileges to work in a big house or even approach the big house, if he was a field slave, then he wasn't expected to even go close to the big house. And so this is where the disconnection may have happened. Mm. And so I wanted Moa to discover some of these rituals, some of these elements, some of his uh, belief systems, if you like, during the journey of this story, when he gets closer to uh, other men from different plantations, and uh, obviously he's, um, he's in contact with Tacky, who can also educate him a great deal.
0: I wondered whether the naming of characters was part of this, because I noticed that the older women tended to have given names. Is that because of the roles that they would have fulfilled?
1: Yes, I reason that, especially if they're working near the, um, the big house, their names would be given, but if you're in the field, you would be um, maybe given an African name by a mother. And that was allowed because you had really no contact with the master. But your overseers, they would uh, describe them with um, kind of nicknames, if you like like um and um uh, I think I had one character called Toolman and and so forth so whatever job they did sometimes they were give a nickname to portray that job
0: yeah I'd like to talk about the artistry in the book as well and the way it's written and the linguistic choices that you had to make because you're going back in history here for one yeah. thing and the dialogue is um I don't know whether you Use the word patois or Jamaican Creole. I kind of
1: decided that um, my characters are in Jamaica. And sooner or later, the patois is going to come into being. I I have no idea when, but I decided to go for some kind of halfway house, if you like, with the language where anybody could understand it. If you're um, English and so forth and you're reading this text, oh, you know, you can quickly... Um, understand the language, but if you're in Jamaica and you're reading the uh, the dialogue, you think, oh right, these um, these characters, they know how to speak patois. Maybe not the full patois, but there's a, a tint of it and a hint of it here and there.
0: And occasionally, uh, the African, the Akan uh, language comes out as well, doesn't it? When they're yes, it does uh, in the yeah. moments of I, I guess heightened emotion.
1: Obviously, these characters must have known some African greetings and so forth. I've been a bit sparse with that because I didn't want to over confuse the reader with um, so many languages but I just wanted to give a hint and a nod to the African ancestors and where they where they came from and what is important to them.
0: A question that I'd like to ask you with uh, teachers in mind uh, yeah. because sometimes what happens when I'm, I'm working with teachers, they get worried uh, about reading books that are written in in this case in Patois because they feel they can't do it justice or they feel it will sound wrong in their mouths. What's your thought about that?
1: If the teacher read the book phonetically and uh, they, they give it the best respect they could, I think Whoever's listening would appreciate that. I really do. Why, not? Why wouldn't they? I mean, I remember reading Irving Welsh. I remember there was an English teacher reading the text from uh, one of his novels and they tried this Scottish accent and I, I, and I appreciated that too because I sensed more of the character when someone was trying to speak like the character on the page rather than in plain English. And so I would encourage them to uh, just try to read it phonetically. And like good actors, just slow down a touch and imagine there are comments after every three words. That's what that's what I do sometimes when I'm reading. And so even if you get it wrong, if you kind of slow in your delivery, they will understand your reading.
0: Good advice there. Really good advice. I want to I do want to uh, tackle some sensitive subjects, too, because I think it's right that we should. And I want to talk about language that's emotionally charged. So the word pickney for child, um, obviously that is related to the word pickaninny. I mean, Enoch Powell used it as a racial slur. Boris Johnson has used it as a racial slur. He'll say that it wasn't, but it was. What matters here about these words? Because on the one hand, it does mean child. Does it matter who's using it or does it matter how it's used? What's your view on that?
1: It's kind of delicate because when I go to Jamaica and I I speak to my um, cousins, uncles, aunts, they always, especially for a child under age of, say, 10, they always use the word picnic, which is, I think, a bit different to piccalini. Picanini. Is, is seen as maybe insulting, but pickney, that is accepted, in Jamaica anyway, whether you're poor or rich or whatever, that, is, that term is used. Mm. And so I guess it might depend who's using that word, but as far as I know, f- as far as my experience is, um, pickney is accepted. But I think it's, uh, it's worth pointing out to differentiate from pickney to pickaninny which is in circles in Westminster circles seen as a uh, insulting.
0: Oh, that's really interesting to to know that, because obviously we're living in a period where it's really important to navigate these issues with great sensitivity. Not that it ever, never has been, but I think yeah. we're all aware that we must do this, and of course things have come to the fore. Um, recently with uh, Black Lives Matter and the taking down of uh, statues that are related to slavery as they did in Bristol so I have a question for you really which is about is about the statues and whether mm-hmm. they should be pulled down or whether we can learn more by just framing them in a different way. I'm more
1: of the opinion that they should be uh, debated about They should be discussed And councils around the country should ask the city or the town whether it's appropriate for these statues to remain. And if not, um, maybe they should go in museums. But for me, the statues are a bit of a distraction. I mean, yes, uh, it can be emotionally charged when you see someone like Colson dragged and flung in a bay, I think it was. And uh, yeah, many people celebrated that. But um, I'm a writer, so I'd rather try to uh, cause change by my reappraisal of history, because for so long, we've been faced with narratives by establishment figures like William Hague, who came out with a book, Wilberforce, to um, tell that narrative of the people who tried to abolish slavery I think in 1833 I think it was and more importance is placed on those figures in the English parliament and so forth so they're looking for some kind of white savior figure but me I'm kind of changing that narrative say wait a minute these slavers were given um, 20 million pounds in 1833, which is an astronomical figure today. So obviously there was an incentive to uh, abolish slavery. But really, for me, the real heroes are people like Tacky, mm. people like uh, Paul Bogle, people like Sam Sharp. You know, these people put their lives on the line and they should be celebrated. And that's why I mentioned that they are our glorious dead. And so what I'd really like to see is a change in the way um, the curriculum is uh, taught to our young. And so they grow up knowing that um, this, this slavery thing was fought against at all levels. And I'm really um, encouraged when I go to Germany, Nikki, when I see um, even the, um, the refugees who have come in from the Middle East, Every single student in Germany, to every school I've been to anyway, they learn about the Holocaust. And I think that's very important that Germany is not afraid to acknowledge that stain in their past. And I think the UK should be no different. They should not look away from their past. And it is shameful. It is a stain on, on the UK's history. I think they should try to embrace that and take it for what it is and teach it properly. And so this is where I come in with my my cane warriors and whatever narratives I can, I can come up with. And I think that way we can affect change more effectively rather than just uh, pull down statues and toss them in the harbour.
0: There's a line in your book, and it's actually used on the back jacket as well, actually. It's spoken just after they've uh, liberated the first plantation and they're waiting to make an advance on Trinity Plantation. and the line is nobody free till everybody free. Now obviously they're talking about the slaves in this context but to me that line kind of resonates for all of us because until you have freedom of everybody then we're kind of all bound up in this aren't we?
1: Yes we are indeed and that comes directly from reggae music from the likes of Bob Marley, Burning Spear, his message was constant and that's I've absorbed that, and I wanted that to come out in a narrative. So um, that's a very important line, and that goes for any culture, any race, any creed in the world today.
0: Mm. It's probably an obvious uh, question in many respects, but what made you choose Moa as your kind of first-person narrator for the story, rather than one of the historical characters? I really think
1: I can affect change more quickly. If I write this for um, young adults, because a young mind's still growing, they're still trying to uh, figure out where the moral boundaries are, what's acceptable and what isn't, and so their minds could be more malleable, if you like, and they're more accepting of a story like Moa. I did consider writing it from Taki's perspective. But I thought no this could be much more effective if I aim it for young people where I could really get them thinking and really um get them thinking to say wow how come this wasn't taught in history class the other day you know I mean I'm just trying to think when I was 13 14 and I was looking for narratives that could help me they weren't there all I learned about was King Henry VIII and his wives and the um the crop rotation and Queen Elizabeth I and her armada. So as a black child in South London, I really wanted someone who I could cling on to, who I could call as a hero. And so I wanted to give them a heroic figure. And it could be Moe, it could be Keraton, it could be Tacky, because they fought the same battles as white heroes did. And so our heroes should be seen in the same kind of lens as anybody else's.
0: Well, it is important and it is significant and it is fantastic that the uh, Neustadt Prize have recognised that uh, in your work. I have just one final question and that is that you've, you've kind of moved from writing for adults to writing for young people and is that because of the reasons that you've just expressed uh, now that you feel that this is where you can have most impact?
1: Absolutely. I felt that even though... I received and gained many plaudits on my adult fiction. I felt there was some kind of ceiling there that I couldn't break through. And um, with my young adult fiction, I have broken through. I'm incredibly happy that uh, my work has now being appreciated anywhere now, where it wasn't before. And I just get such a thrill when I go into a school. Obviously, I cannot do that now, but I get such a thrill when I'm standing up in front of an assembly and I share my work and how I've got into writing because I know I can inspire somebody in the audience there. And you see the excitement on their faces, the curiousness, and I really appreciate that. So I'll probably stay in YA and middle grade for quite some time yet because I really enjoy it. I I really enjoy my writing. I enjoy my audiences. I enjoy the questions that young people ask me. I enjoy the fact that um, I may be inspiring to some of those young young audience members so why would I move?
0: Absolutely well we're glad to have you and uh, not only are you inspiring young people but you're certainly inspiring uh, the teachers and the uh, people that work with them too. Alex thank you so much for joining me in the Reading Corner today Um, it's been enlightening and inspiring.
1: Thank you for having me Nikki. it's a pleasure to be on your show.
0: Thanks for listening to In the Reading Corner with Just Imagine. If you have enjoyed this podcast, you can find many more on the podcast section of our website, justimagine.co.uk, plus via iTunes or SoundCloud or your usual podcast provider. Don't forget to pass the pod and recommend this fantastic free resource to your friends and colleagues.